thanks to Joe and the session for inviting me to come and be your teacher this morning. I've been looking forward to it. This is my first time that I've ever spoken in an OP church. I'm a PCA boy. I've planted two PCA churches, so I know what it's like to meet in interesting locales. The first church, this church is how old is it? Five years old, roughly speaking? Six? That's great. Look at all these people. It's wonderful. I like the name, Mid-Cities, where you can have people coming from both sides of the North Texas Metroplex. I like that vision. Um, I planted a church in eastern North Carolina in the late 80s in Greenville, and naming a church can be hard, you know, because it's not like naming a business. You can, you can rightfully name a business with a glorious, proud-sounding name, you know, um, uh, Big Mike's Plumbing or something like that. But a church is hard. So the first church that I planted in eastern North Carolina, we, sometimes, like, Mid-Cities is a geographical referent name as compared to a theological name, which are the two main categories. The first church that I planted, um, we noticed that the name of the county, in search of a, of a geographical referent name, we noticed that the name of the county is Pitt. Pitt County. We thought, hmm, there's potential there. And we also noticed that the Tar River runs through the north side of town. So we thought, hey, we've, I've got it. We'll, we'll put the two together, Tar Pitt Presbyterian. And then um, we could have two mottos. Every church needs a motto. And our motto, our motto could be, once you walk in, you'll never leave. <laughs> a friendly church. And another motto could be, could be, when we baptize somebody, it sticks. <laughs> Perhaps. But no, decided there it was not a good geographical reference. We will actually look at the scriptures this morning, ever so briefly, it's, it, uh, as soon as my Tourette's syndrome exhausts itself here. Uh, the second, so we called it Christ Presbyterian Church. The second church I planted was a daughter church of a very large contemporary PCA church called Perimeter Church in Atlanta. And Perimeter Church is closer in to Atlanta's circular freeway, the perimeter, and our church was farther out, so I thought that a perfect name for that would be Peripheral Church. But that, again, that did not have quite the right uh, uh, ring to it. This morning... We are looking at one of the longer prayers in the New Testament. And this prayer was written by the Apostle Paul. And he introduces some of his main themes in his letter. He introduces this theme of enlightenment. Or that your eyes, my eyes, might be opened farther than they are now so that we might understand things that we thought we already understood. So he prays that our eyes might be opened. 25 years ago, when our eldest son was about 22 months old or so, he came down with a case of pink eye. And the little rascal needed antibiotic eye drops to cure him. So we went and got the prescription filled, and it was time to give eye drops to a two-year-old. So we began by applying a little bit of reason. Now, sweetheart, we love you so much. Mommy needs to put two drops of this stuff in each eye, and it's good for you. You need this. It'll help. He nodded trustingly. But 
as soon as we tried to maneuver the eyedrop close to his precious little baby blues, he would flinch and slam them shut. So being experienced parents, we, we supplied more rational argumentation. Now, sweetheart, keep your eyes open. This is important. We love you. You need this. And he nodded trustingly again. But as soon as the eyedrop would get close to his eyes, of course, he slammed them shut. Well, pretty soon the trusting nods were gone. And the situation had deteriorated to a wrestling match. As in this state, it was called, perhaps in the 80s or 90s, it would be called a Texas cage match. With about 20 pounds of furious toddler in one corner and 335 pounds of rookie parent in the other. And if you're doing the math, I account for 215 of those 335. So now everyone knows how much we're not a ways. I'm sure she'll be thankful for that. But you see, the odds were in his favor because we were deathly afraid that we would injure his eyes. By no means, on no terms, would he accept this medication. And unless he opened his eyes, see the metaphor here, he would stay sick. We knew that. He didn't. So after a brief strategy session, Renata and I placed the little subject face up, buns down, on the soft carpet of the living room floor. By this time, he was wailing at full volume like an angry macaw. If the expression on his face could have been put into words, it would have been something like this. Uh, up until this point, I had assumed that you two were fairly decent people, but that was all a ruse, wasn't it? So it's come to this, has it? So Renata sat on all fours, immobilizing his feet beneath her feet, and immobilizing one flailing arm with each hand. And I kneeled facing Renata and immobilized his head between my knees. And we, we gently pried each eyeball open as he fought. He fought like to the death for every millimeter of eyeball. And we administered the medicine to him uh, whether he wanted it or not. And after all this weeping and gnashing of teeth, just a couple of years ago, a retired pediatrician said, well, son, all you got to do is wait till he's asleep and just pop it in. It's like I could have had a V8. As an infant, and here's the, here's the reason why we begin with this story, as an infant, his grasp of reality was not sufficient to motivate him to open his eyes. He uh, needed help from a higher power to get his eyes open. And the Lord usually does that in far more gentle ways. But as I read the first portion of this prayer, please notice the idea of illumination, of our eyes being opened or enlightened to see some of the same things that we may have known all along, but to see them from a new angle. I begin in Ephesians, I'm reading the New International Version, Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. 
I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit, the spirit, of wisdom and revelation, so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know. And we'll stop right there for now. It's a prayer for enlightenment. And let me ask you two questions. First question, if you're praying for someone, do you need to inform that person as to the content and existence of that prayer in order for your prayer to make it through the ceiling? The answer would be in the negative, no. Second question, then why do you tell someone that you're praying for them? Why does Paul tell these people and us by application, why does he tell us that he's praying for them? Well, it's to encourage. Primarily painting with a broad brush, it's to encourage. It's to persuade you and me to progress. You who know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Perhaps most of us in the room. I'm here to tell you this morning that you know, yet you don't. God has more stuff, good stuff, wonderful things in store for you than you have figured out yet. You who are investigating Christianity, perhaps a friend or a relative or something like that, the Christian life is an optimistic life. Discovering as yet undiscovered possibilities of God's personal love for you, for all who call upon his son through this message that we call the gospel. And when I say an optimistic life, I don't mean that it's a problem-free life. I'm not talking about what people would refer to as prosperity theology. But Paul is saying, let's think some things through, friends. Let's think about what God has done for us and how it presently applies in order that we might be enlightened to better know what we claim that we already know. Things that you haven't fully unpacked yet, nor have I. When Adlai Stevenson was running for president, one of his supporters said, do you realize that every thinking person in America supports you? And he shrugged and said, yes, but I must win by a majority. <laughs> or perhaps better, in uh, Jim Varney in the classic movie Ernest Goes to Jail, playing the, the Ernest P. Worrell role, he said, I had a preconceived notion once, but it turned out to be something that I'd already thought about. <laughs> So friends, I'm just an ordinary guy with struggles exactly like or perhaps worse than you, but I do claim to have good news for you this morning. And it's nothing that you have never thought of before, although that would make me a heretic and you'd run me out of this OP church. But Paul is implying that our eyes aren't as open as they ought to be or could be. And let's continue. Let's look at the content of the prayer. And the center of the prayer is the resurrection. So reading on, back to verse 18, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, 
and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is according to the working of his mighty strength. If you've got your NIV, it says like, which is, that makes it look like it's comparing it to the resurrection. It's not comparing it to the resurrection. The Greek text is saying that it is the resurrection that is, that, that is at work in us. It is according to the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills everything in every way. Now, there are a lot of words in this prayer that I just read. But the, the information in verse 20 is the cognitive center point of what's going on in this prayer. Every last word in this prayer relates to and ties in to the idea of what, what Christians, the distinctive belief in the Christian faith. Like Paul says elsewhere in Romans 1, that Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. Many people, hundreds of people, perhaps thousands, were crucified in the first century in the Jewish, Jewish wars against the Roman Empire. One of those crucifixions is unique and it is the resurrection that informs us of its uniqueness. One of those crucifixions is where a substitutionary payment for sin took place, which is why you and I can, why, why uh, a bunch of uh, mostly Gentiles probably have been swept into this thing called the kingdom of God. It's the resurrection that places God uni God's unique stamp of approval on this, on this cross which is the focus of our attention. The two are bound together. So, the resurrection of Christ and his ascension at the right hand of God, which is, which is a, an image of victory. The first place the term right hand occurs is in Exodus 15, right after he split the Red Sea and brought, and brought his people out of slavery, out of bondage, in a victorious act of power. In verse 18... The hope is resurrection hope. Paul says in the book of Acts, he says, I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. Peter calls it a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Back in the second century approximately Christians used to wear white to funerals like a couple of us well dressed men here this morning are wearing white now people have worn dark clothing to funerals since dirt I mean going way back into the ancient world to, back to the invention of handwriting people have it's not just an American thing 
a friend of mine at Sunday school a couple of weeks ago, he always wears these, he's a, a retired oral surgeon, and he always wears these garish colored clothing and, you know, orange sport coats and, and stuff like that. And he was dressed very darkly, dark suit. And I asked him, and he had been to a funeral the day before. Now, Christians used to show up at funerals doing a totally countercultural thing, and that is wearing white. And it was not some sappy sort of hope that they were trying to get across. It's because they believed to the core of their essence. These second century Christians believed to the very core of their essence that the dear departed would walk the earth again when Jesus Christ returns. And nothing has changed. I, I think it would be a great idea to do the same. Because we believe there's a man who's 93 years old uh, who prayed to receive Christ as his Savior about two years ago. His name is Jerry. And Jerry has asked me to do his funeral because when you're 93, you plan stuff like that. And what I'm going to do, if as long as my wife, who is my, my cultural correctness coach, <laughs> as long as she approves, because I don't, I don't want to do something that will rattle people's cage too much, what I'm going to do, Jerry used to be a very athletic young man, and he's very, very feeble now. As I'm, I know where I can get my hands on a picture of Jerry at a swimming pool with his hands, his two hands on the bar that goes down into the steps into the pool with his feet flipped up in the air and he's doing a handstand. And I want to get that blown up as a poster. And I want to unfurl it and I want to say, friends, Jerry Cunningham will walk the earth again. That's a Christian funeral. That's the hope that we have. In verse 18, the inheritance. If context means anything, fellow Presbyterians, Bible studiers, if context means anything, the inheritance is a resurrected eternity that you will receive a resurrection body that works like Jesus' resurrected body. Not that you'll become a god, but it'll be a body that works forever, that never gets sick, in, in pain, or dies. A body that is fit to live forever in the new heaven and new earth, young and healthy. So the best way to explain it is to compare it with vast, vast sums of money, which Paul does right there in the text, the riches of his inheritance. In verse 19, the power that is at work in your life and mine is resurrection power to live an increasingly Christ-centered life. The reason why God continually convicts me of sin and righteousness in my own life is because of the resurrected Christ at work. It's the power of his resurrection that helps keep me uh, somewhat staggering in the correct direction on the straight and narrow path. And the same is true with you. It's not that we're such great shakes as Christians. It's the resurrected Christ that has a, a group of, of uh, rebels on the wagon collected in a YMCA. That's the truth. Now, let's apply this a little bit. First, I want to give you a, a tiny bit of historical background. The positive impact of the resurrection on your life you have not fully realized yet. I have not fully realized yet. We're going to look at a few applications of that. But um, first of all, I want to give you a little bit of historical background on the resurrection. Historically, uh, clearly I can't reproduce it in a test tube. 
none of the historical things that, that, Christ, that classic Christianity has claimed to believe can be reproduced in a test tube. But sensible people have always known that dead folks do not rise. I mean, it's known in medical science today. The ancient Babylonians knew it. 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, they called the grave Erzet Latari, which is the land of no return. Because even in the third millennium BC, intelligent, sophisticated people knew that dead bodies do not rise. Of course they don't. The Egyptians knew it. That is the, the belief that the corpse must be kept intact in order for the spirit to be able to go, which they called the Ba, the spirit, the spirit bird, the Ba, to be able to go to the afterlife. The corpse, they believed, had to be kept intact. And it is this belief, this fear of death, that motivated the building of the pyramids that you see today. Egyptian theology, Christian theology is entirely different is that God can raise the dust that remains. If he returns 500 years from now, he can raise the dust that is left of Michael Dwayne Rasmussen from the grave. The Greeks knew it, that people don't rise from the grave. Of course they don't. No, one, no sensible man believes that. In one of the, the plays of the poet Aeschylus, he puts these words on the lips of one of his characters. Quote, once a man has died and the dust has soaked up his blood, there is no resurrection. Of course not. Sensible, educated people have always known that. Thomas Jefferson was a very intellectual, sensible man, one of the fathers of our country, a man of letters, and he knew, of course, that people don't rise from the grave, the spirit perhaps, but not the body. And so he put together his own edited version of the Bible, in which he removed things that did not meet with his suitabilities, and I refer to it as the cut and paste version. And Jefferson's Bible ends with these words. Matthew 27, 59, and 60, the end of Jefferson's New Testament. And Joseph took the body of Jesus and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own tomb, which he had cut in the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. So Jefferson's Bible ends with a whimper in the same way that does the life of every sensible man or woman, because clearly people do not physically rise once they are dead. That's what Plato believed. It's what smart folks have believed all along until the middle of the first century AD, a rumor began to spread that a certain Jewish prophet had been crucified and that his tomb had been found empty in spite of the fact that a Roman ranger platoon had been placed to guard it and that hundreds of people had claimed to be eyewitnesses that this prophet's tomb was empty and they had seen this prophet alive, Jesus. They would not deny it even upon pain of death. And they claimed that this Jesus was Kyrios, Caesar. They used political terminology to describe him, as Paul's prayer is laden with political terminology. During Jesus' Palestinian ministry, his half-brother James, when Jesus was going through Palestine with Matthew and, and them boys, 
Jesus' half-brother James, his, his brother by the, by, in the flesh, a sensible man, thought that Jesus was a, a potato salad shy of a full picnic and would not associate with his movement. Kept Jesus at arm's length. Oh, he's, my, he, he's that relative that I would rather keep in the closet. Until Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that the resurrected Christ appeared to James, the James who was off-puttish with Jesus, and James turned on a dime and wound up the leader of the Jerusalem church, one of the larger churches in the culture at that time, and he refused to deny that he had seen the resurrected Christ, even when some of the local religious authorities in Jerusalem took him to the top of the temple, threatened to shove him off unless he denied it. He refused, they pushed him off, and then they stoned to death what was left of him. And he died with the words on his lips that he had seen his brother alive, who had been stone cold dead for three days. The historian Eusebius tells us that Jesus' blood relatives were brought before the emperor Domitian on suspicion that they were members of a rival royal family. This empty tomb irritated the emperor so much that he, he placed penalties on grave tampering. Archaeologists have found an inscription near Nazareth, near Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, and the, the inscription reads as follows. The emperor issues an edict, warning of penalties for breaking open or violating tombs near Nazareth. In the second, and this is my last bit of historical background for you, and then we're going to close with some applications. In the uh, second century and third century, a new genre of literature. This is what you get when you ask a professor to come preach. You know? In the second and third century, a new genre of literature arose that had never before been seen in the history of, human, of, of civilization. And it was, the, it was the novel of the ostensible death of the hero and his return from the dead. And this idea, this, human beings had been writing fiction for ages prior to this event, but not until the second century AD, this new apparent death, hero return from death novel appeared and swept across the Middle Eastern and European uh, literate scene. How did that happen? Well, I think I know. It's because Jesus Christ rose physically from the grave and Again, those of you investigating the Christian faith, I can't stomp my foot or pound the table and, 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 um, and prove it to you, but this is the testimony of the Christian church for 2,000 years. And all these changed lives, is all, they're also evidence of it. So, three applications, or maybe four, we'll see how it goes. Three applications, and the first one is to open your eyes a little bit more to this reality that the power and mercy and faithfulness of God demonstrated for you and then applied with power in your life in spite of your flaws. Open your eyes a little bit more to the wonder of that. It's easy to get bored with it for well-trained Christians, and rumor has it that's what OP people are. PCA people too. Well, we're, we're a little more on the, on the wild side, you know. I, I, uh, 
drove a Ferrari here. I'm kidding, I didn't. It's an ordinary Toyota. Um, open your eyes a little bit more to what you already know. There was once a poor man in North Carolina who needed a new doorstop, and this is a true story. So he went for a walk down to the creek and he pulled a rock out of a couple of feet of water and he says, hmm, this is about the right size. And he functioned well for quite some time as a doorstop in his home until for some reason, perchance, a geologist happened to be in this man's house and he looked at that rock and he determined that that rock is really not a rock. It was, it was a nugget of gold that was covered in creek junk. And it was the largest, at that time, the largest nugget ever discovered east of the Rocky Mountains valued at today, it would be seven figures easily, a huge lump of gold. So my point, the man had known about the rock for years, but he had really never known about the rock. He had seen the rock for years, but in a way he'd never really seen the rock. He had possessed the rock. He, shall we say, had a relationship with the rock, a relationship of doorstopness with the rock, but he had really never had a relationship with the rock yet until his eyes were opened as to the identity and, and power of this rock. So, um, believer in Christ, open your eyes a little bit further. In spite of whatever uh, boredom, in spite of whatever besetting sin you may have, in spite of whatever discouragement, depression you may have, in spite of whatever heartbreak you may have, whatever your situation may be, not at all because of who is saying this, but because of what the text says, God has far more in store for you than you've figured out yet. If Christianity is anything, you know, it's the resurrection. That's 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ is not risen, our, our faith is in vain and we're still in our sins and we might as well go be pagans. That's what Paul said. That's 1 Corinthians 15 in a nutshell. So you and I are living in a resurrection force field right now. From the day you became a believer until the day of your deathbed, you and I are living in a positive resurrection force field of forgiveness, of conviction of sin, continued conviction of sin, of many blessings of God, tangible blessings that he showers upon us 24-7. From the day of your death and beyond to the day he returns and raises you from the dead, you and I are standing in a positive resurrection benefit force field, and we should align ourselves with that and not be rationalists about the Christian faith. The reason why you're seeking God has nothing to do, well, our theology is, I, I love theology and I've read Calvin more than you. But the reason why we're seeking God is because of the resurrection power that, that, that maintains us in the path. So align yourself more with that force field. Um, God's ultimate message to a dead and dying world is one of resurrection from the grave. Ultimate, the ultimate hope. Back in the mid-90s, I used to go for runs on the road. And um, not, nothing too radical, a few miles. 
a few times a week, and I noticed my hip was hurting. And I noticed the pain was getting worse and worse as the weeks progressed. So I went to the, this uh, doctor, and an orthopedic surgeon, and he put the x-ray up on the, that thing that, where the light shines through the x-rays, and he pointed and he said, do you see that? I said, no. And he said, well, look, you have this dysplasia of the hip. You're a candidate for a total hip replacement someday. And the, the exercises that I can do now, as the, as the years roll by, the exercises that I can do, the list gets shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. Because I've had, you know, I like to work out, and now this shoulder's not letting me work out. I think it's a labrum injury. But my point is, is that, that if I'm going to take a Christian world and life view, I need to remember that I'm going to get a new body. And that doesn't mean that I should treat this one poorly, but I'm going to get a new one that lasts forever. Okay, application, a couple more, and then we, we are finished. Um, repent bigger. Maybe plug into some accountability over some issues in your life. Repent bigger. There are step out of the dark and into the light. There are eight Greek words related to power in this prayer. And it's a power that's available to us, which we have not fully experienced yet. I remember when I was about six years old, my dear old dad was mowing the lawn with his Toro, a real lawnmower, and I decided that it would be a bright idea to grasp the spark plug while it was running. I've never forgotten that. It put me into immediate touch with a higher power. <laughs> but this text is telling you and I that there is a higher power to help us step out of darkness into light. The light and darkness theme echoes throughout Ephesians in a, call to, in a further call to repentance. For example, it says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, and usually you open your eyes. Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So repent bigger. You know, in preparation for this message, there's a friend of mine who's an accountability partner of mine, and I have been, uh, um, there's some things that I should, probably should talk to him about that he can hold me accountable for. And I can't be that much worse or better than you. Uh, close the illustration, and then we, uh, we um, are finished. There was a, a man who had um, been an alcoholic for decades. And he uh, was talking with a person who was skeptical about the faith. And skeptics are welcome in OP churches, you know. We, we want you all to come and, I'm not an OP guy, but we want you all to come and investigate and step into the light with us. The church, you know, is the, is the sort of the, the, the navel of the earth of the, of the resurrection work. That's what it says at the end of this prayer. Even though the church is run, the inmates are running the asylum. Particularly Joe Troutman. He's a stand-up guy. 
But the inmates are in the asylum. Still, the church is where we're to go to find this resurrection power. So this man had come to Christ and come to the church, and he was being questioned by a skeptic. And the skeptical individual said, you, know, you don't believe all that stuff in the Bible, do you? All that history stuff in the Old Testament and stuff? He said, well, I, I guess I do. I guess I do. He said, do you believe that Moses parted the waters, that God parted the waters? And he said, well, yeah, yeah, I believe that happened, yeah. He said, do you believe that God created Adam and Eve? He said, well, you know, I, I guess I do. I'm a simple man, but I guess I do. He said, do you really believe that Jesus, like, turned water into wine? And the man said, well, I, I'm not a theologian, I, and I know that's what, what this, the Bible says, and I don't have the answers to all of these things, but I do know that in my house he turned wine into furniture and love and restored relationships. And it is, my friends, the resurrection and all of the things around it that installs that in our hardened and discouraged and tired hearts and brings about rejoicing. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we, um, we just stand in awe and amazement at the, the narrative of who your son is. And what the scripture says about him, we thank you as uh, simple human beings. We thank you for his virgin birth. We thank you for his sinless life. We thank you for how he, he put your character on full display. Your distaste for, for sin, your distaste for, for uh, human beings abusing each other that he put all of that on full display. We thank you that he went willingly to, to die the death of a political rebel even though he wasn't one because his kingdom is not of this world. And we thank you that you made that death count for us condemned sinners. And we thank you for his glorious resurrection. And by faith, as simple people, by faith, we believe he physically rose and that he will someday return, even though we don't know when. And we pray that you would install this truth in an encouraging way, in life-changing, powerful ways, in each one of our lives as we individually need it, that we would open our eyes to new things in each one of our lives as we individually need it. And we pray for those who are investigating faith who are, or who aren't sure if they believe that you would apply this resurrection power and help them to open their eyes and step out of the darkness into the light to take a further step in that direction. We pray. Because that's the only reason why any of us are here. We thank you for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.